Uh, I will tell any, any, any young aspiring entrepreneurs out there that are listening. I, I hit every mistake branch in the, on the tree falling out of it. I mean, you know, got hit in the mouth so many times. I can't remember. Uh, just made a decision early that I, every time I got hit in the mouth, I'd get back up and, and figure out uh, a better way to do it. And uh, that and not quitting uh, brings us to where we are today. Welcome to Invest for the Win, where we discuss strategies to win at the game of private investing. Whether you're a novice or a seasoned investor, tune in to hear experts break down complex topics and reveal emerging trends in private investing. Head over to investforthewin.com to find links to these episodes and additional content. Position yourself to invest for the win. Hosted by the founders of FTW Investments, Logan Freeman, Corey Tuck, and Parker Webb. On today's show, we have Ivan Barrett, who's the principal at BAM Capital. And BAM has grown to 5,900 units, over $700 million in assets. And I was really interested in talking to Ivan about vertical integration and what that meant uh, to creating enterprise value uh, for himself and for his investors. Make sure to check out today's episode. It was a fantastic conversation with Ivan Barrett. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Invest for the Win podcast. Our goal on the podcast is to provide unique insights into the private investment world by using our own experience, but you know, not navigating our own transactions in today's marketplace, but also diving into stories and perspectives of experts in the multifamily commercial real estate space and private business operations. And today we have Ivan Barrett of BAM Capital talking about investing in multifamily, building an Inc. 5000 company, going vertically integrated, a lot of things that uh, FTW Investments are going through currently. I'm excited to talk with an expert today. Ivan is a multifamily owner, manager, and syndicator specializing in large apartment communities in the Midwest. So shout out to the Midwest. He's up in Indianapolis, not too far from us here in Kansas City. Since 2015, Ivan has raised nearly $250 million in equity. So we'll definitely talk about that. Acquired over 5,900 units and grown the BAM companies to a best-in-class four-time Inc. 5000 private equity and management firm. Five times. That's awesome. <laughs> that's new. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fantastic, man. Congratulations. Oh, and today, you. Ivan focuses most of his time on equity finance acquisitions and the company strategy, currently managing nearly $700 million in syndicated assets, man. Ivan, super excited to have you on today. Provided a brief overview of who you are and some of your experience, but I mean, I always like to go back to the beginning. I always, I have an interesting origin story and most of the folks on the, on the show do as well. So tell us through your eyes, man, how you got started in the industry. Well, first and foremost, Logan, thanks for having me here. I've been excited to, uh, to be with you uh, ever since uh, Kasman introduced you and me. He's a good friend of mine. Love that guy. Yeah, great and, guy. Uh, wouldn't shut up about how much he liked you. <laughs> It's nice to sit down and rap for a little bit about about the uh, about the goings on of our industry. Absolutely, um, man. So I mean, all the way back, all the way back. So you know, when I was seven years old, uh, my dad would wake up me and my my six year old brother uh, all summer long to mow pro to mow his rental properties. Okay. And, uh, you know, back then, you know, you couldn't you couldn't uh, turn your father into the authorities for making you do manual labor. <laughs> um, that was probably the first exposure I had to rental properties. He was a big, a big fan of owning real estate. And I, um, I thought, why would you want to, why would you want a real job? Why wouldn't you just own a bunch more of these and, 
watch the rent checks come in. So that was like the first um, exposure to it. I, I, I'd always had that bug uh, to be an entrepreneur, uh, to, to, to blaze my own path. We'd lemonade stands and he would, he would grow plants when we were kids. Um, uh, the legal kind for anybody yeah. who's, uh, who's, who's, who's keeping track here. We'd have these big plant sales in the summer and he would teach us all about, you know, uh, revenue and profit and costs of goods sold. Uh, and so he, he and my mom was also a very entrepreneurial, instilled that. And so at a young age, really got the bug uh, for real estate. And then as I, as I got a little bit older, you know, I started reading things like Rich Dad, Poor Dad and everything else that, uh, that people read. Luckily, I got that early on. And uh, I just always had that dream, man, of owning a, a, a B quadrant business. I was talking about this with a young entrepreneur uh, just yesterday. You know, and that definition of a B quadrant business where you could you could leave it and come back and it's and it's grown. It's yeah. it's uh, it's expanded since you left. And that was always the dream. Uh, real estate's been the vehicle um, to uh, um, to make that to make that happen. Absolutely, man. Well, it sounds like you had your own rich dad, you know, at least instilling those you know, those philosophies. Somewhat, somewhat, yeah. somewhat. I, he was a, a, a he is a, a middle-class guy. He's an attorney, a uh, great career, but still, you know, an hourly, um, yeah. uh, as, as Rich Dad would say, or Robert Kiyosaki would say, he's, you know, firmly in the S quadrant, uh, but he wanted something more for his kids. I'll, I'll never forget. Um, I was planning on going to law school and I didn't want to necessarily practice law, but I thought it'd be a great way to get into the real estate development game. Uh, my father said, son, don't be an attorney, be an entrepreneur and hire great attorneys. There you go. A little Sam Zell for you right there. I like it. Yeah. 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 No kidding. Yeah. And that's um, um, yeah, so very lucky at a, at a very early age and all throughout uh, college, studied business, studied real estate and knew exactly what I wanted to do when I got out. Didn't know how I was going to get there. Um that early in my career, but knew that I wanted to be in real estate, knew that I wanted to, to play at a big level one day. Yeah. So did you take the the regular trajectory, went to college, got out? So when, whenever you got out, what was that first job or did you have a first job or did you get started rocking and rolling on the entrepreneurial uh, journey right, at, right out of college? I, I did take a paycheck for about a year and a half because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to be in development. And at that time, it was really hard to get in the door with a a developer through that school, uh, through IU, because they were basically basically recruiting brokers and analysts. Sure. And I, at the time, I didn't want to be a broker, although I think today that's you know a great route, uh, a great way to get educated is to go be a, a commercial uh, broker. That's how I found my partner. Uh, so I, I I worked my sales job that I worked in college. I went back and led a sales team, maybe about a year got my foot in the door with a guy, um, started doing some odd real estate stuff for him, whatever I could get my hands on. Uh, and then after that, uh, became a, a full-time uh, real estate professional, got my foot in the door with a developer finally and said, hey, I, uh, I'm here to work to learn, not to earn. And said I'd work for free, uh, which was a pretty compelling offer for him. Now, of course, he would pay me uh, when we got deals done. Um, but I did not take a paycheck. That was the last time um, in my career, uh, maybe, maybe 2003, 2004, and then worked, worked under his tutelage, uh, up and through the GFC, the great financial crash. One of the best gifts of my career was, was, uh, riding through that at an early age. 
uh, and, and learning that side of the real estate cycle. And then started BAM in my spare bedroom in 2010, okay. first as a property management company. So I was scaling that along with uh, on the side, uh, learning about uh, creative finance, hard money loans. And I was buying small multifamilies uh, that were either physically distressed or the seller was distressed or, or, or both sure. um, in areas of India that I knew were coming up. And I'd borrow hard money to, to, uh, to do the Burr method before it was called Burr, you know, buy them, renovate them, rent them, refinance and repeat. And did that a bunch of times and then started buying small apartment deals. Uh, did my first, what I would call syndication light, 60 units, maybe 10 or 12 investors, uh, late 13, early 14. The next one after that was 112 units. Um, first deal with onsite staff. And from there, it was off to the races and, uh, and kept growing from there. My partner's been with me now. Um, seven years, Adam and I have been together. And that's when we really started bending the growth curve. Um, we're the yin to each other's yang, the peanut butter to each other's jelly sandwich. Uh, him, the operator, me, the visionary. And it's, it's worked out really well. Uh, I will tell any, any, any young aspiring entrepreneurs out there that are listening, I, I hit every mistake branch in the, on the tree, falling out of it. I mean, you know, got hit in the mouth so many times, I can't remember. Uh, just made a decision early that I Every time I got hit in the mouth, I'd get back up and, and figure out uh, a better way to do it. And uh, that and not quitting uh, brings us to where we are today. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, you have an extensive background and you started with the property management, which is really interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But you, All right. don't, you don't get to 5,900 units and 700 million of assets um, by happenstance. And so uh, my, my question to you just to start this conversation off is, you know, how have you positioned yourself as an expert and a thought leader in the space to be able to continue to attract not only capital, uh, but partners and deals and, and good staff now too? I don't know how big the team is, but I, I imagine it's pretty sizable now. Um, how, have you, how have you done that over the years? And how's that journey been for you um, in, in going, going from, you know, doing those deals that you were and, and working out of the, the spare bedroom to, I'm sure, a nice office space now and, and rocking and rolling, man. I'm, I just got to hear that and, and how you've continued to position yourself as an expert. Well, as you know, as Mark Cuban would say, there are no shortcuts. I did it. Yeah. I did it knocking on one door at a time, one unit at a time, one investor at a time. Um, our single greatest source of capital uh, to this day, Logan, is repeat investment. And our second greatest source of capital is still referrals. Yeah. Uh, you know, magic things happen when um, you treat people well and you, uh, you, you, do, uh, you do well for them as an investor and you communicate well, uh, you get a few exits under your belt and you start building up this, um, this momentum to where now it's, it's sort of happening on its own in a lot of cases. Uh, management side, definitely um, very hard. What, what really ties it all together, man, is the people. Yeah. I am really lucky with the people we've got around here. We are at 115 employees. And there's a few people, um, in, case the, in case they listen to this, Kat, Jerry, uh, Emily, um, certainly more than that. Um, Jace is a new one. 
but finding these special people that that come in and, and there's a lot more that I could name. So if you're listening, guys, um, you, you know, I love you. Um, you. You've taken this thing way farther than I could. But getting people in early that buy into to a vision to something greater. So I, I had this this, uh, you know, wild, crazy idea, man. I said, hey, let's focus on being a company, a management company where where crazy enough people want to work. Let's build a culture where people are knocking on our door to work here, which doesn't happen very often in, in property management. Sure. And I had some really great people that bought into that um, early on. And that, those, that kind of vision, that kind of mission, it starts informing decisions, right? How do we have a, let's have a maintenance uh, group that is treated like gold because that's what they're worth to us. Nothing, nothing goes according to plan. Um, it all falls apart, literally, if you, if you don't have great maintenance people. I, you know, I drive by um, apartment communities all the time where they've, they've got a sign out front that says, now hiring maintenance. And I, I kind of get a little, little laugh and a little proud dad moment as the, as the entrepreneur. You know, we don't have those issues uh, because the way we, we treat our people, our, our core values, um, a couple that come to mind that I'm, I'm a, a favorite of or um, you know, work hard, play hard, win. We're a loyal, loving family. Um, and when people grow, fam grows. And those aren't aspirational ideas that I came up with and shoved down the throats of everybody. You know, the leadership of this company helped me come up with those ideas and we live them out and they inform decision-making, right? Yeah. So when, when somebody comes to me and, and informs me that, you know, so-and-so's son uh, young adult uh, dies of an overdose. Hey, Bam's paying for the funeral. They're not asking me, hey, uh, should we pay for this maintenance uh, person's son's funeral, right? They already know what my answer is because our core values, our culture informed that decision. So they don't have to go through me for all this stuff. They already know how Bam rolls, right? And it's, it's, so many companies get this wrong. Everybody's talking about culture, but it, it's it's simple. It's just not easy to pull off, and you got to have a lot of a lot of people that buy into that. And then you've you've got to eat your own cooking, right? You've got to make those those decisions um, in the in the um, in the uh, pretext of of what you say you want to be as a company, and that's how you get great culture. That's how you get great people. Um, way more important than the real estate is is the people if you want to be big if you want to grow a big company a big organization uh because as an entrepreneur you know i passed the the point where i could work harder a long time ago absolutely long time ago yeah makes a lot of sense i'm gonna get off my cultural soapbox i know i've been rambling on for a minute no i mean i think that's a fantastic thread to continue on i mean it's it's so important and and here's the thing too is what I'm finding as we're continuing to grow. We don't have 115, we have 25, but you know, I aspire to, to get to 115 and, and we will at some point, but it, it's, it's this big thing that uh, Darren Hardy always talks about called momentum and it's the big mo, yeah. is, is what he calls it. And the more people you can get working in that context is you're just going to attract more and more of that to you. And um, I'm finding, you know, from, from our growth is, you know, the, the way that you treat people is so important, not only employees, but people that you work with, vendors, 
uh, investors, all of the different uh, folks that are integrated into your business. It's it's how you go about business. The what is pretty simple. We know what we're trying to accomplish, but the how is what stands apart uh, a lot of the times and why people either succeed or fail. And relationships, I always say, do two things. They bring you opportunities, but they also solve problems. And um, I think you have to keep that in mind when you're thinking about, you know, just burning through bridges all of the time. It's not really been my MO to do that. It's been us to try to treat people with dignity, respect. And, um, you know, we get told that our company feels like a, a family as well. So I, I definitely can understand that perspective too. Well, and if you get, if you get the right people at the top, you can you can maintain that even as you grow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned the GFC, the Great Financial Crisis, right? And being yeah. in this for some time, you've obviously seen a lot of ups and downs. And I'm just curious to hear kind of how um, you've seen commercial real estate investors be successful through all business cycles. And uh, we'll get to predictions in a little bit. That's my favorite uh, my favorite segment. But I do sure. want to. I hear kind of how you navigated that and how you saw other investors maybe a couple steps ahead of you at the time navigate that and what people should be thinking about right now. Absolutely. Um, I mean, back all the way back to the GFC, you know, that that was that forever changed my DNA. I saw the difference between speculators and real investors. Um, I saw the advantages of multifamily yeah. versus other real estate asset classes. And I saw multifamily companies in my market grow bigger. And at the same time, you know, I think I was reading Anti-Fragile uh, for the first time, um, Nassim Taleb's book. And it, it was a lot of the book is about, you know, how do you how do you improve when times are bad? How do you how do you become less fragile or anti-fragile? Right. How do you, how do bad things actually make you stronger, right? And it's this, it's this philosophy or, or um, this way of looking at it, which is, you know, what, what makes me the guy that gets excited for COVID, not, not for, the for the damage it caused, but when the markets go down or when you find the best opportunities, um, it shakes out the weak hands at the table. And so, um, I bought a few great deals in 2010 when real estate was still down. Yeah. Um, in uh, in lockdown, the beginning of lockdown, before everything started really going up, I bought some of my best apartment deals. And I'm on the phone uh, on a Zoom call, you know, with 10, 12 other operators, and everybody's talking about uh, negative rents and um, you know battening down the hatches and 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 get ready for winter and i'm like well hold on a second guys the fed has already told us like they did in 2008 that they're going to print the heck out of the dollar um and liquefy markets because they don't want another 2008 because 2008 was almost 1929 yeah and so we we suspected that, that that they would have to liquefy markets and print otherwise it would have been the greatest uh depression um maybe the dark ages again sure and they weren't going to let that happen. So we, we placed some good bets and I had to be on the phone with a lot of investors to, to uh, get their buy-in on this, but I bought four of the best deals I've ever bought. Uh, similar things happening right now. Uh, it's gotten a little soft out there as interest rates are going up. People aren't overpaying for assets like they were. So all of a sudden, you know, my deal flow is looking pretty good again. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's about being prepared for those times uh, because that's typically when you're going to make the best returns. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we're seeing the same thing. And we took the same approach that you did. You know, we were able to acquire about a thousand units from April to October uh, in the midst of lockdown. Nice. Yeah, before it all started going up again, right? That's exactly That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. So took a little bit of chutzpah because we were not in the business necessarily of investing in real estate in 2008, but sure. um, we saw the same markers that I think that you did and felt very comfortable with multifamily at the time um, and still do, obviously, and, and hoping that uh, the deal flow will come back. And I do agree that when times get tough, the weekends are um, you know, shake out from the from the table. And so I think we're we're on the precipice of that. And I'm excited for the next opportunity uh, for that to happen. And that's, again, where relationships come back around to help you out, because all of the brokers that, you know, have been sending us deals the last 12 months and we've continued to build relationships with them, but say, hey, you know, we're not uh, we're not players right now, apparently at that price. Guess what? When they get those listings and they're not getting those prices, who are they calling? They're calling Ivan. And they're calling Logan and they're calling the real operators out there that are trying to continue to do these uh, types of opportunities and can perform. So it uh, makes a lot of sense, Ivan. I really appreciate that insight. Happy to give it. Happy to give it. You already you already know what you're doing, though. So the one question I had, because you did mention and, and I like to play golf and they say that trees are 90 percent air. I would beg to differ uh, a lot of the times because I end up hitting a lot of the branches in those trees. But you said you <laughs> every single one of those branches kind of on a, on a failure standpoint. Um, and, and, and we have as well and continue to, to, to become better and, and learn from them. But what are some of those biggest mistakes that maybe you went through or you see other people um, kind of headed down that same that same path when they're either getting started? or growing a business? Oh man. Um, how, how much time you got? I mean, we could do, we could do a whole three hour Joe Rogan level <laughs> podcast on all the mistakes I've made. Uh, I mean, you know, some of the big ones, um, you know, the, the market definitely could, you know, has helped people out and that, that can change overpaying for deals. I mean, in, in my twenties, um, you know, I was pretty eager to get going. And one thing that, that, that held me back for a while was my ego, right? I wanted to do big deals. Sure. And when I got out of the way of my own ego and said, you know what I own, I think I own like one duplex and a condo. I'm like, I got to stop looking for big deals and just find my next deal, whether it's two units or four units. Right. And I really started focusing on something my dad used to say all the time, which was the journey of 10,000 miles starts with the next step. Yeah. Right. And so what's, what's one little step I can take today to go to, to climb that, that 10,000 miles or 10,000 unit, right. Journey. And every day, what's a little step I can take. And so it, it became really clear to, to on the management side um, that, that scaling a management company would help me learn those mistakes early on small deals before I started taking on investor capital. Um, I would, um, I know you're bringing, you're bringing management in house. I would be having as many conversations with other operators that brought it in, you know, at the size that you're bringing it in at, it, it, size you're bringing it in house at. Um, that's something I, I can't necessarily add a lot of value because I, I built it from the ground up when we, when we were small. Right. And you're going to run into some other, um, other issues, you know, bringing it in now, which is a great thing to do, right? Um, you need to do it. And I'm sure there's some great operators out there um, that could, 
that could give you some ideas on, hey, we screwed this up or here's what we should have done if we had to do it all over again. I think one good, um, I know you asked me about mistakes and I, I'm, I'm kind of changing the answer here, but you know, one, I think thing that would have been rocket is rocket fuel for, for me. Um, and, and if I could go back in time, I would have started doing it much sooner uh, would be to have um, mentors, um, coaches. I kind of always got the mentor thing, right. But to have actual paid coaches on like yeah, a, yeah. you know, biweekly cadence or, you know, every couple of weeks and then getting into a peer group. Like I joined EO um, then I outgrew EO and joined YPO. Now I'm in YPO and another thing called Tiger 21, which you have to be um, worth a, a pretty significant amount uh, on your balance sheet to, to be able to join that group. And so I'm always looking for what's the next pond um, that I can get into where I'm the little fish again, right? Where can I get out of my comfort zone and get around people that are much bigger than me, right? That are little, even a little intimidating, right? Uh, make me feel a little small. Absolutely. There's so much, there's so much to learn there. And I, I think oftentimes, um, Logan, and I'm sure you've seen is, is people try to figure out all the mistakes they're going to make and solve for those. And it just ends up, it just ends up delaying them from getting started. And so when I, when I sort of had this light bulb moment, like, Hey, there's no way to, to plan or model all the mistakes I'm going to make that's just part of the journey. You're going to make them. Can't always tell which ones you're going to make. Right. But just knowing I'm going to get hit in the mouth. Right. Mike Tyson said it best. Like everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the mouth. Right. It's, it's choosing to get in the ring anyway, knowing you're going to get hit in the mouth and just telling yourself no matter effing what I'm going to get up and I'm going to win that fight and I'm going to get knocked down again and I'm going to get back up again and I'm going to win that fight. And luckily, you know, you got more than three minutes and you got more than a 10 count to get back up and dust yourself off and, and figure out a, a new strategy. Yeah. Sounds like grit and perseverance and grit's a great thing, man. And, and grit, you know, you, you, some people might be born with it, but it is something that you can develop in yourself. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I read Angela Duckworth's book, Grit. It's a phenomenal read. Uh, speaking of books. Well, I, I think David Goggins would tell you, you know, when he was 300 pounds spraying for bugs all night long, he didn't have much grit. And look at him now, right? Like donuts and anyone can develop grit. It's just the discipline to choose to do it. Yeah, I uh, take a lot of inspiration from David Goggins and his book um, as well. So, but one book that I've heard you mention, I think a few times, or at least um, some of the, uh, the verbiage is traction and the oh, yeah. operating system. Um, oh yeah. Big one. You're the visionary in the business. Your, your partner is the integrator or the operator. Integrator. And, yeah. Yeah. Integrator, and, and you've mentioned rocket fuel as well, which is uh, a book that we have definitely uh, been reading uh, as a company too. So uh, talk to me a little bit about uh, when you started uh, you know, utilizing that, uh, that book traction in the entrepreneurial operating system and how that's helped to, to provide you guys with rocket fuel. I'm really curious to hear that because we're going through it right now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think we're somewhere close to four years on EOS. Okay. Um, we got to a point in the business, maybe five years now, I don't know, time and, and dates. Sure. It's, it's even more warped with COVID. Um, we got to this point in the business where my leadership team, some of those people I mentioned earlier, 
you know, they couldn't work any harder, not let alone me. They couldn't work any harder. They were at the top of their, um, you know, RPM limit or bandwidth. Right. And so I'm starting to search and wonder, um, what can I do to help them? What can I do to help organize this growth? We got to start developing leaders under our leaders. And luckily at that time I was in the EO uh, network, not EOS, but entrepreneurs organization. And this, this book just kept coming up traction. Um, And how many people were jumping on EOS and, and, and it's even maybe 10 X more popular now than it was then. And it, and it is that for a reason, it's a really great operating system. So Luckily at that time, I already knew that I was, a, I was a visionary, even though I hadn't really heard that term much or heard it, you know, I always thought, Hey, visionary is just somebody with ideas that never gets anything done. Sure. Um, and I already knew my partner was a better operator than me. And so I had already sort of flexed that muscle a little bit. Um, um, and why I say that as a muscle is because I'm not by design, somebody that, that can get out of the way and let other people do stuff. Sure. I had, I had to, I had to do more push-ups. I had to, I had to develop that muscle to get out of the way. Um, and so I came to him and, and I said, what I often say is, Hey, I, I got an idea unless you talk me out of it. I think we should check out this system. And so we went to the 90 minute pitch. He's like, yeah, I think there's something real here. And uh, the team went with us and they're like, yeah, we're, we're willing to give this a try. And so we went through it. Um, and we've been we've been running it ever since. Now we've added on things um, since then to help to continue that growth. Um, but we still run our company on EOS, and it just helps sort of get everybody in the right seat on the bus. It helps organize the troops, um, and it's a great tool for our leaders to have their own meetings with their own teams and run those meetings the same way, so that the people underneath them have accountability. Absolutely. Yeah. The accountability piece has been incredibly helpful for us thinking about. It's huge. It's huge. And it really, it really helps you shine a light on people that are maybe a B or a C player. And you get to a point, you got to get the B and C players off the squad because A players don't want to play with B players, right? It's in the book. Um, And, and you get to this point where the A players start weeding out people that aren't, aren't rising to the, the level of expectations uh, on their own, they start weeding people out and this magical things happen, you know, happen. People are all uh, rowing the boat in the right direction together. You got people in the right seat on the bus is another way to describe it. And uh, you really start picking up uh, a lot of mo, a lot of momentum. Absolutely. And I think the biggest thing that uh, one of the biggest things that's helped us is just create clarity on who owns what and where does oh, this. Oh, huge. So important, right? Jeez, man, you got to get that down or you're doing this all the time. And, and ultimately, one person's got to own something. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, Ivan, you started with property management, right? And yeah. you've, you've uh, I'm guessing, um, have also added in some sort of component of construction, or at least, you know, you, you talked about maintenance. So you have that in-house as well. Um, but the value of vertical integration, you know, especially... I've heard it said two ways. One, you know, investors love the op- the idea of, of the operator investing with the true operator, right? And the second part um, also is it can kind of be a insurance policy for your own assets because nobody's going to manage them like you would or should uh, manage your properties. I've experienced that. 
firsthand. My question is, okay, so which one of those is it? Is or is it a mix of both? Um, oh, it's the, definitely both. Okay, all right, and it's definitely both. Yeah, the second part of it is, um, you know. It really, you know, I get pitched a lot on, okay, let's do Bitcoin mining. Let's do all of these other different ideas. I said, how about we just become, you know, my answer is always, how about we just become an expert in real estate operations? And that's what I'm going to do uh, for the time being. But um, my, my, my real question really comes down to like, you know, when you think about vertical integration, you think about EOS and the value that that's actually creating from a business perspective. Um, how do you quantify that? Like, I mean, that's the question that I've been trying to think through is the actual enterprise value that you're creating for investors. You don't usually see that on a pro forma because, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are are simply syndicators and raising capital and putting management yeah. in place and saying, I'm going to be an asset manager. Okay. But, but when you think about investing with them versus investing with BAM, that is you have enterprise value that you are providing to investors and how to convey that and quantify that. I mean, I'm sure you've had a lot of conversations with, with folks about that over the years. I'm just curious to get your, your headspace on that because that's kind of exactly where we're at. Yeah. Well, um, I, I really want to get back to that uh, Bitcoin mining company, yeah. um, uh, but I won't go there yet. So you'll, you'll see, you probably already run into it. You know, some of the family offices we work with and some of our, our larger private investors. So we're, we're all individual investors from, you know, the, the person that's worth maybe a million bucks invest in 50 or hundred grand um, up to family offices in excess of, of hundreds of millions of dollars in net worth. As you go up the food chain, most of those, um, family offices and large teams uh, of working for families uh, or sophisticated investors that just uh, have high net worth or ultra high net worth. One of their deal breakers uh, oftentimes is not having um, your own operational capacity. They don't want to work with capital aggregators. Right. They want to work with owner operators. And that's like one of the first things that they weed out is, um, is the, the aggregators versus the operators. And so it's, it's, it's just par for the course when you get to a certain size. Now, there's really big institutions out there that, that manage billions of, of dollars that partner with giant property management companies. Um, and that, that works, can work well too, but I'm not a, um, you know, I'm not a 100,000 unit owner. I'm looking to maximize returns for individual investors that otherwise might not have access to the, um, you know, the private offerings that we have or that you, that you have. Absolutely. Um, you know, early on, I'm lucky. I got a brother in private equity, very smart guy, uh, one year younger than me, about 10 times smarter. The good news is I'm, I'm slightly better looking, just slightly. Uh, but, I, you know, and, and so I used to bounce a lot of stuff off him, but I just modeled what other people were doing at the time. And yeah. I modeled some very successful, some very wealthy families, some very wealthy, or excuse me, successful companies. They all had in-house management. Um, and so I'm like, okay, there must be something to that. Well, and I, I, gosh, I read this book a long time ago, a long time ago called Execution. Haven't read it in years, but came to the conclusion that um, if I'm going to be really good at one thing, which is why I don't chase shiny objects anymore, but if I'm going to be really good at one thing and I'm going to do this right, then I've got to be able to execute on the management. Um, 
apartments are the most intensive uh, management of any real estate asset class on the planet. Now that's why they pay me the big bucks and that's why I can get the big returns. Uh, but without the management team, there's so much more risk there. We used to third-party manage for other clients. Now we don't do that anymore. We only deploy our special forces on assets where we're uh, sponsoring sponsoring the deal or have have interest in the the upside uh, of the project. You know that that friend you and I were talking about before the start of the show. You know he brought us in. His family's invested with me for for years. He brought me in on a deal he's doing um, because he he wanted our management expertise um, and our ability to execute a renovation. You know he doesn't need me now like he used to, and, and I'm happy for him. Um, but the day you close is is the day the real work begins, right? And for me, it just does not make sense. It doesn't it doesn't jive with my DNA to put that much responsibility in somebody else's hands who's juggling multiple clients and has their own agenda. Um, and then what's really, really cool, you talk about enterprise value, is my management company can be a loss leader, right? I don't need to make money on the management side. I just need it to execute the wealth strategy for my capital and my investors, right? It's my money to work too, right? I'm not, I'm not a, a diversified portfolio. I got a little bit of stock and bonds, uh, but I'm cash and real estate, baby. And you know, I want a big team that can execute on that. Um, and, uh, and I want to be able to, to hire those people at, at every level and decide where they're going to work and promote them and, and, and develop them, um, not somebody else. Yeah. What was the shift that, that um, you know, happened that uh, you decided to not work on third-party management anymore? I'm just, I'm just really- Oh, it was just, it, that was always the plan. Okay. Yeah. Um, I started the management company and in, in the beginning I was managing way more for other people and then deals I had myself. Sure. But I used that to scale a management team, right? Then I started buying my own deals. Um, and at a certain point we got big enough to where we could start firing uh, management clients in order of who we liked the least. And the plan was always to use that as a bridge uh, to where we could we could have them exclusively working on on assets, we we happen to think we got a really good thing going on the management side and how we execute and 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 it's part a big part of our value add um, uh, to investors, right? Um, not only raising rents from physical improvements, but finding other ways to add value to the property and uh, and decrease expenses as well, which is also a value add. And so we we only want to deploy that asset, one of my best assets, my team. Um, when I am an, an investor as well as my my other uh, folks, we don't really don't like working for other people except our investors who let us do our thing. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Ivan, that's what I've been heard. I've, I've heard called greedy in the best way possible because you're deploying, yeah. I'll, t- I'll buy that. Yeah, you're deploying your special forces on your own assets, but also the the, the investors' assets that uh, have entrusted their their capital with you. So uh, it makes a lot of sense to me, and we do not do any third party uh, right now either and don't have any plans to do that. So well, um, at some point, somebody in your team's going to go, hey, I got a great idea. Why don't we scale up a third party management <laughs> and um, think twice? Yeah, absolutely. Think we'll twice. do. I, Ivan, I, we've got it. 
we've got to get to predictions because it's one of my favorite segments and um, we're quickly running out of time. So I want to hear, we talked a little bit about kind of the, the multifamily space and kind of where you see, uh, you know, opportunities coming, but, you know, I just put a post up on LinkedIn today and, and got uh, tons of uh, activity on it because, you know, um, we work previous CEO uh, is now has now raised 350 million from uh, Andreessen Horowitz to do something in the multifamily space. And I say, yeah, something. Did, you, did you get what he's, what is he doing? I don't think anybody knows yet. Okay. But- so I read the article and I'm like, I, I got a bunch of great uh, buzzwords, but I didn't hear exactly like what the business plan is. Yeah. A friend, of mine, a friend of mine said, what do you think? I'm like, I don't know. It didn't say anything. It didn't say anything. So um, anyways, we'll see where that goes. But I'm, I'm curious, predictions in the multifamily space. I had uh, Jay Parsons on, economist for RealPage, uh, phenomenal uh, data resource and, and really parses that data and, and brings insights. And we talked about this recently. But, um, you know, you've been in the business for a long time and, and kind of uh, would love to hear any predictions that you see uh, in the multifamily space and, and kind of where 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 opportunities that uh, that you're you're seeing out there right now? Oh man, Logan, I'll tell you anything but the markets I'm looking in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, there, in, in every in every part of the cycle, there are opportunities, right? For those that are disciplined enough to find them. I mean, yeah. some of my greatest uh, memories are of a guy uh, that I got to uh, speak with who was. Um, you know, buying buying single family homes in San Francisco in the 80s and 90s when everybody was saying it was overpriced and there was no opportunities. And he was putting in mother-in-law, you know, in-laws quarters on the back of them and adding value. Yeah. Right. So there's just there's always ways to make money in real estate if you treat it like a business and you look for the opportunities. Big macro predictions, interest rates are coming back down. The yield curve is inverted. The bond market, the market of truth is already saying yields have to come back down. Um, we're likely in a recession already. Not, not maybe a terrible one, but definitely a recession. The real estate residential for sale market has got to soften. Um, but on the other side of that, you've, you've got um, uh, historic supply demand dislocation. We, we haven't built enough units in the last decade. Um, and they're now exceedingly uh, expensive to build. And so we're, we're going to be hitting an affordable housing crisis. Um, you know, I hope my affordable housing friends find ways to build more of it on, on, with government financing because there's no other way to, to build it. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's funny. My smartest investors are like, this, this is getting exciting. We're seeing more deals. What are we buying? And, and the smallest investors are going, wow, is, you know, uh, they're biting their nails. It's now a time to buy real estate. I'm like, heck yeah. Now, now on, a, on a good year, I might do four deals and it's been a good year, right? And those deals were, have been really hard to find most of the time. Uh, the next 12 months, I might find six or eight. The deal flow seems to be getting better. Um, some markets are certainly still oversaturated. You, as you and I know, or, there, or there's too much dumb money paying too much for the properties. We have to go uh, where the puck is going, uh, not, not where it's been, right? And like that little market that you and I were talking about before we started, which I'm a big fan of too, by the end of the year, I'll own over a thousand units in that market. Mm-hmm. Love that market. Yeah. We need a chance to talk about that, that part. Um, and it, it's finding those emerging markets. In this business, I think you and I uh, are best served by being macro students and, and, and learning as much as we can about economics, economic history. Uh, I'll give you this. I am reading 
rereading Alan Greenspan's book right now, The Age of Turbulence. Haven't read that book in over a decade. It's very, um, or maybe a decade or so since it came out. Uh, very interesting um, to read that history again from uh, before he became Fed chairman to his terms, you know, his take on, uh, on, on Black Monday uh, in October 87, his take on, on, you know, the savings and loan crisis, some of the things he saw in dot-com um, and some of that inside baseball and how the Fed makes decisions. There, there's there's a, a lot to it. And we could, again, this is another thing I, I could spend three hours talking about macro pr predictions. The best part about what you and I are doing is people always need a roof over their head. And even when the residential market is hot, um, there's still about 40% of the population or so that are going to be renters. And we've got population growth. Um, politics will change. We will, we will open the immigration floodgates again. We always have. It's been one of our greatest assets is, is allowing the, the, the best and the brightest to come to this country for the opportunities. Um, there will be some bumps in the road, my friend, but America, North America, uh, Canada, the US, and in Mexico, who's also got great demographics, who is, gonna, who is going to benefit greatly uh, in the long run uh, from what's happening to the global order uh, in the split between China and the US, Mexico is gonna benefit greatly. Uh, if you haven't heard it here, heard it before, you heard it here for the first time on Logan's podcast, Fortress North America will do just fine. Uh, and it's going to be a, a beautiful century. Yeah, absolutely. There's some bumps in the road. There always are. Yeah. I've heard ITR economics call it the uh, roaring 20s again. So that's really interesting. And I, I love the Wayne Gretzky quote that you you mentioned. And um, I'm just finishing up Paul Volcker's uh, most recent me memoir. And he was uh, the Ooh, Fed look at you, bud. I love it. I got to, yeah. I got to go Volker next. Yeah. So it's a really great, uh, really great story. And, um, you know, I think that you'll enjoy that book, um, uh, you know, greatly. So I will, I wrote down Alan Greenspan's book that I will be reading next. So I appreciate that. Uh, Ivan. Okay. Last, last question, man. We, I always ask, you know, what inspires you and why do you do what you do? Because you are growing, you have grown and created uh, an incredible organization. You're empowering people. Uh, you're creating safe housing for individuals. But I mean, that's all fine and dandy, but there's got to be a burning why. You don't, you don't sit on the other side of this uh, interview kind of uh, camping without uh, having <laughs> yeah. a burning yeah, why. I'll try to sum it up. I mean, there's definitely a fire in my belly to leave a, a legacy that, that, that surpasses me, that, that my great-grandchildren will look back on with, with, uh, with fondness, um, lots of impact and philanthropy and, and you know, doing, doing great things um, for, for my church and charity. Uh, but you know, for me, it's, I've got this desire to be a great dad, a great husband, have a great spiritual relationship with my creator. Um, um, and, and, and I feel like I've been given all these gifts and, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. Right. Um, and I also have this burning desire to live this big, you know, full life um, with great experiences and uh, and be, you know, a great example to uh, to my children um, and, and really just get all out of life I can before uh, before I move on to the next chapter, hopefully about 120 years from now. Yeah, absolutely, man. That's incredible. Uh, well, we align a lot, um, Ivan, uh, more than I think that you know. So, I, Ivan, I really That's appreciate That's great, man. Uh, we'll, we'll get back on this podcast again here maybe a few months or so. Yeah, man. I appreciate your time and insights. I know our listeners are going to find this valuable. I surely did. Well, and I know why John told me I, I can't miss a conversation with Logan. 
uh, I'm really, really thankful we did this. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Invest for the Win. If you found this episode valuable, please take a moment to share it with a friend you think could benefit from the insights of our experts. Also, don't forget to take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Visit investforthewin.com to learn more.